1: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.
2: Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on this week's show... What more needs to be done to eliminate AIDS?
1: The longer you delay, the bigger the problem becomes because you have a larger pool of potential newly infected people.
2: And has the issue of liquid water on Mars finally been settled?
0: Now, though, what we seem to have is underneath the southern polar ice cap on Mars, there is liquid water, and not just a little bit. There is a lake about 20 kilometers across. But first... As
2: I'm sitting in a coolly air-conditioned studio in London, Britain is in the midst of one of its longest heat waves, with temperatures set to soar even higher. But Britain isn't alone. In Japan, a heat wave sweeping the country has been so great that it declared a natural disaster, with temperatures exceeding 41 degrees Celsius. But are these heat waves a result of rising global temperatures? To discuss this, I'm joined on the phone by Dr. Frederico Otto, an associate professor in the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford. Hello, Dr. Otto. Hello. Dr. Otto, your research is on extreme weather events. What are extreme weather events?
3: That is a very good question, and there is no easy answer to that. The simple answer is extreme events are rare events that don't happen very often, but whether or not an event is perceived as extreme also depends very much on who is in harm's way. So in some cases, events that are not very extreme from a meteorological point of view, so happen, for example, every five years or so, can have very large impacts and are thus extreme from an impact point of view.
2: Now, are these extreme weather events increasing
3: well, not all extreme weather events are increasing, but in a warming climate, we see the likelihood of heat waves to occur is increasing. So on a global average, we have hotter heat waves, and also their frequency of occurrence is increasing. And on a global average, we also have increasing numbers of extreme rainfall events, but Because climate change does not only mean that global temperatures are rising and we thus see more extreme rainfall or more heat waves, but climate change also means that when we, as we have done, change the composition of the atmosphere and we change the land surface, that has an impact on the atmospheric circulation, which means where weather systems develop and how they move is changing. And so... Some events are getting more likely, other events are getting less likely, and there are also extreme weather events where climate change does not change the likelihood. Heatwaves, however, is one example where we have almost everywhere on the globe a strong increase in their likelihood.
2: So is it fair to say that the heatwaves that we're suffering this summer in Europe and in parts of the United States and elsewhere is the result of climate change?
3: Well, it's not only the result of climate change. Every extreme event and every heat wave is always a combination of different drivers. It's always the atmospheric circulation, the noise of just day-to-day weather, feedbacks of the land, but there are also external drivers, and one of them is climate change. And these external drivers can change the likelihood of events to occur. And that is exactly what we see happening with climate change, because we have increased the background temperature also the temperatures of local heat waves are higher than they would have been in a world without climate change. This, under future warming, this will quite likely be an average summer and not a particularly hot summer.
2: Do you feel that these heat waves serve a beneficial function because it viscerally shows people what climate change is and therefore people are more prone to perhaps act against it?
3: That would be fantastic if that would be the case. Maybe we should have elections in the summer so that when people... Then really think about what's important to them when they vote. But I'm not too optimistic on that front, to be honest. Why not? Because it's not the first time that we have experienced a heatwave in Europe or in the US where it was very obvious that climate change is playing a role. And it hasn't really led to climate change being on top of people's priority list when they think about who should be leading the country.
2: But if these adverse and extreme weather events are the new normal, I just wonder, it seems to me the old cliche of how the British always talk about the weather, because there's nothing else that they feel comfortable talking about. Now you're going to be talking about the chaotic weather. Maybe you can talk about liberal values, scientific evidence, and reducing climate
3: change. That would be great. And yeah, I very much hope that that's what's happening. And there are signs, small signs, that we have the Paris Agreement, and it has been ratified by all countries in the world is quite an important sign in the right direction. So I should probably be less pessimistic.
2: Dr. Otto, thank you very much. You're welcome. Next up, how much does the world want to eliminate HIV and AIDS? That's the question hanging over the 22nd meeting of the International AIDS Society, which is taking place in Amsterdam this week. And to answer that question, I'm joined on the phone by Jeffrey Carr, the Economist Science Editor, who is in Amsterdam to attend the meeting. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Ken. So, Jeff, what are people talking about?
1: Well, they're talking about trying to bring the epidemic under control. It's HIV and AIDS is not much of a problem these days in rich countries. There are good drugs to treat it, and there are bad drugs available to stop you catching it if you take them before you have sex. And those drugs are widely available in the in the West and other, other rich countries, and they're widely used. And so HIV has rather dropped out of the news in the rich world, but it's still a big problem uh, in poor countries, and particularly in uh, southern and eastern Africa. And it kills over 900,000 people a year, even now. The epidemic is being dealt with by the distribution of drugs called antiretrovirals, and these will stop the symptoms of AIDS developing and keep you alive, but they don't get rid of the virus. So uh, what people are talking about is how to spread more uh, antiretrovirals around to get more people on these drugs to save their lives. And also, if they are on the drugs, they don't pass the virus to other people.
2: So what do we need to do as a society to staunch AIDS and HIV in the future?
1: Well, we need to spend more money, I'm afraid. The uh, current amount of money that is spent in poor countries, I think, is about $21 billion is, is spent on aid, and a lot of it is on buying the drugs and distributing them. The estimate is that that needs to go up by about 20%, and uh, it's easy to, to put your hands in the air and say, oh, well, yeah, everybody wants more money. $21 billion is probably enough. But AIDS is an unusual medical problem because... If you've got rid of a disease like malaria, then you you would get rid of all costs associated with it. But even if you've got everybody who was infected onto the anti- antiretroviral drugs, and that would stop the transmission of the disease. You still have to pay for those drugs uh, for the lifetime of those individuals. So you're talking about decades, because most of them are quite young. Uh, and the, as far as we can tell, the drugs uh, allow you to, ha- to have a normal lifespan. So you have to spend the money on maintaining people. Every time you put somebody on a, a, a drug, it's a, a lifetime cost.
2: It's hard for me to understand whether I should be optimistic or depressed by this. Which one should I be?
1: I think, yeah, it's a cliche, But I think we're sort of on a knife edge. I mean, there's a sort of a feeling of slight resignation uh, in the meeting. Some people are optimistic. Some people are pessimistic. It depends who you ask, and it also, to a certain extent, depends on what their interests are. But I mean, the reason to be optimistic is that if you got the extra money, you re- you really could deal with this problem. Uh, I mean, it's hard to get to the. Um, the remaining people who are infected but the techniques for doing so are improving all the time. Uh, People understand better and better how AIDS is spread and who's likely to have it and the one of the things that uh, happened as a result of HIV is that the medical networks, the clinic networks in many African countries have got quite a lot better because part of the 20-odd you know, billion a year that's being spent is being spent on health infrastructure, which can be used for that and for other things. So there's reason for optimism if the money is forthcoming. But if the money is not forthcoming, people talk about uh, a, a earthquake or a youth wave. And in Africa in particular, the population is growing, and that means it's growing from the bottom, more and more young people. So, again, the longer you delay, the bigger the problem becomes because you have a larger pool of potential newly infected people. So, it is a, a bit of a tipping point. Um, if if we act now, then I think you know, good things could happen, and uh, and in the course of a decade or two, you could... Bring the epidemic you know, under control using the drugs alone and a bit of uh, interruption of transmission.
2: Jeff, that's really interesting. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Ken.
2: So what are your thoughts on what more needs to be done to eradicate AIDS or on the rise of the heat wave? Tell us in an email and send it to radio at or on Twitter at Economist Radio. Finally, for centuries, astronomers and scientists have speculated on the existence of liquid water on Mars. However, in a paper published this week, the question seems to have been settled in a spectacular fashion. I'm joined in the studio by Tim Cross, one of our science correspondents, to discuss the findings and whether the argument has been resolved indeed once and for all. Hello, Tim. Hi, Ken. Tim, tell
0: us. I guess the first thing we should say is actually there's no shortage of water on Mars. It's just that it seems to be almost all ice. So there's millions of cubic kilometers of ice on Mars enough to sort of drown the whole planet in a 100-foot deep ocean if it were all to melt. But what people really have been wondering about for a long, long time, ever since, you know, the 1890s and this whole idea that you could see canals on the Martian surface was whether any of it was liquid. And so up until today, really, when, when, when this was published, The best thing we had was some observations from orbit, which seemed to show that, you know, very occasionally you'd get these tiny little bubblings of briny water in the bottoms of craters, maybe sort of in the Martian summer when it was slightly less cold and the water could exist on the surface briefly. Even that's never quite been conclusively proven. Now, though, what we seem to have is underneath the southern polar ice cap on Mars, there is liquid water and not just a little bit. There is a lake about 20 kilometers across, buried about one and a half kilometers down beneath the ice. Is this the
2: sort of finding that is widely accepted or might there be a challenge to it?
0: Well, it's early days. The papers only just come out. But um, everyone I spoke to in advance of the publication seemed to think it was, you know, a pretty good piece of science. And I mean, the the technology they've used to find it is not new. It's a similar sort of technology to what we use on Earth to look under the ground. It basically just involves radar. You send low frequency radar waves into the ground. You wait to see uh, the reflections and different substances reflect the radar waves, different intensities, and so you can you can tell what's down there. So the team took three and a half years of data, all of it from from orbit, around the southern Martian pole. They surveyed an area that 's about two hundred kilometers wide, and they go through in in the paper various other explanations and sort of rule them out in ways that people who know more about geology than me seem to find pretty convincing so I think it 's a bit hard to say, but I think it, it seems to be a pretty solid finding
2: and why do we think it 's water and not some other liquid
0: just because of the the, the, the characteristics of the radar reflections, like i said there 's no actual shortage of water on Mars. The thing that we seem to be missing is is liquid water. And you can sort of reason by analogy, because what this thing looks an awful lot like is things that we're familiar from from Earth. So, for instance, underneath Antarctica, there are a whole load of of subterranean lakes, and one of them, Lake Vostok, is one of the biggest lakes in the world. And they're kept liquid by a combination of, uh, you know, the ice insulating them from the surface, the fact that the temperatures go up as you, uh, you know, go deeper underground. And on Mars, you've got the the pressure of the ice itself will effectively lower the melting point of water as also might the presence of other chemicals that we already know exist on the Martian surface and that basically work like antifreeze. So, so you could get water that's liquid at temperatures quite a long way below zero, which is, seems to be what we have here.
2: Tim, let's be honest. Nobody really cares about water on Mars. They care about other life on Mars. How does this finding point us in the direction of whether life once existed or currently exists on Mars.
0: Ken, you're traducing the geologists of the world. Lots of people care about water. No, that is indeed the big question. So we know, um, you can see from from orbit, Mars was at one point warm and wet, and you can see dried up river valleys and and deltas and so on, and the, the Curiosity rover is driving around on the bed of one right now. So the hope has always been that maybe... Four billion years ago, when the planet was much warmer and and much wetter, something did evolve, and then since then it's been clinging on in some refuge as the rest of the world, or the rest of Mars, has sort of dried out and frozen. On the other hand, though, it's been about 3.8 billion years, uh, astronomers reckon, since Mars last had water on it. And that's an awful long time for a, a single lake to have survived. One of the scientists I spoke to pointed out as well that Mars's axial tilt has changed since then, which means the polar caps will have moved all over the surface. So the place where the lake is hasn't necessarily always had ice on top of it. So whether this lake is really quite so ancient, I think, uh, has yet to be proven. On the other hand, it may be that there are more of these things. There are plenty of them on Earth. The same basic geological processes apply, and it may well be that Mars is dotted with these things, and who knows, perhaps in one of them something has managed to cling on. And of course for now it's all speculation, but I think what this does do is maybe puts Mars sort of back in contention a bit because NASA's motto when looking for life has always been «follow the water». And for that reason, I think recently some of the focus has maybe started to shift a bit to the outer solar system, to the moons of planets like Jupiter and Saturn, which, which are icy but seem to have big liquid oceans of water uh, underneath that surface. Now that we know Mars seems to have liquid water as well, I think that maybe bumps it back up the rankings a bit.
2: Tim, thank you very much. Thanks again. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest edition of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, consider taking out a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Kenneth Kukie, and in London, sweltering like the rest of the city, this is The Economist.